Well, evening. How's everybody this evening? Good. We're going to continue our ongoing journey through the book of Exodus. So if you'd open up to the book of Exodus, actually we're going to be in not quite Exodus 22, more like 24. Um, as we continue to go through now, where we're at right now, the Lord has given the law. He spoke the law to the children of Israel. The children of Israel said, oh, we can't handle this. We, we, we can't deal with all of this that, that God has told us. So they asked Moses, you, you just talk to the Lord and tell us what he said. So Moses drew near, but the people kind of backed away. And so the Lord went through the, the whole judicial law that he had for his people. Ultimately, by the time we get done with the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, we will have covered some 613 commandments. Ten commandments spoken by the Lord, 613 given to govern His people. Well, as we finish up uh, today, or as we begin chapter 24 and look forward uh, on to chapter 25, we're coming near that time, we're going to see Moses draw away, he's going to come down to the people and ask them one more time, are you guys willing to do all these things? And the people one more time will say, yeah, we're willing. And then Moses is going to go up with Joshua and he's going to be on top of Mount Sinai for 40 days and he's going to receive not only the the law written by the finger of God, but also a blueprint for a set of plans to build something called the tabernacle. And so we're going to be going through that from chapter 25 to 40. That whole thing deals with the tabernacle, the parts, the implements within the tabernacle. And the important thing, I think, as we get to that, maybe we get to that tonight, we'll see. As we get to that point, we're going to see that Jesus said in Psalm 40, we hear that the scriptures, it is these that speak of him. Everything about Jesus we're going to find in the scriptures. John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and tabernacled with us. The Bible says where two or three are gathered, what happens? The Lord's in the midst, right? Any idea where they put the tabernacle? In the middle of the entire company, and they camped all around it. So we're going to see Christ in the tabernacle as we go through that. But as we take a look, as we move forward through the book of Exodus now, we're on chapter 24, verse 1. And now he said to Moses... Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And that's kind of cool, because God is calling uh, Moses, Joshua, Aaron, his two sons, 70 elders. They're all going to come together. Now remember, those 70 elders, there are some people who want to point to those 70 elders and say, oh, that was really worldly advice from Jethro. Moses shouldn't have had those helpers, but here we have God calling them all up to the mountain. Bring them all. Come on up to the mountain and worship from afar. Do you realize that worship, the, the blessing that we have in worship is you can do worship anywhere? That you, Moses is going to be in the presence of God here in about a chapter. Worshiping in the presence of God, that's, that's pretty easy, isn't it? Worshiping from afar, for, especially for you and I, that's a little more difficult. It's a little more tricky but the reality is guys god's word lays out for us that worship is an attitude we just come to the lord with an attitude of of submission and and worship glorifying him for wherever we find ourselves 
And we, just like these guys, can worship from afar. The cool thing is, as they worship from afar, they're going to see the Lord. They're going to see Him. Now, they're not with Him. They're not right up next to Him. They're closer than the other people. But their heart, their desire is in worship, folks. And in worship, when we worship, when we have an attitude of worship, that's where you're going to see Him. That's where God's going to speak. That's how God's going to minister to your heart when we come to Him with that kind of an attitude. And that attitude can be anywhere. It can be here on Wednesday night or Sunday morning or Sunday night. It could be in your car on your way to Boise or whatever you got going on. Anywhere you are, you can have that attitude of worship and God can minister and speak to you in that place. We just have to be willing to have it. Here, Moses is going to give that order. And Moses, it says in verse 2, And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with them. So Moses came, he told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. Now, most of us feel the same way, don't we? I mean, it's not very often. If, if I'm a true believer, I'm not a make-believer, I love the Lord with all my heart, I don't wake up in the morning and say, Well, today, Lord, I'm going to break as many of your precepts as possible. No, my heart is, I want to keep them. The reality is I'm going to fail. But I want you to see in this, God never rebukes the people for their attitude of saying, yes, we want to keep them. Yes, we want to follow you. In, in, uh, in a little while, as we continue through Exodus, we'll come to a point where God says to the children, hey, children of Israel, listen, I- I'm not going to go with you. You guys, go ahead. I'll still give you the land. You can still have it all. It's all yours, but I'm not going. And the people said, then we don't want to go. We don't want to be anywhere where you're not. Because their heart was true. Sometimes we look at the children of Israel and we start thinking, oh, I can't believe they could mess up so much or or make all these errors, all these mistakes. But the reality is, folks, we just need to look in a mirror to find people just like them. Because we're going to fail and make some of those same mistakes. The point is, where's your heart? Is your heart to please the Lord? Because even the disciples around Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus said, now come and, and pray with me, what did they all do? They fell asleep. Peter, James, and John, hey, you get to come a little closer with the Lord, right? But hey, stay awake and pray with me. And they fell asleep. Jesus even woke them up. They fell back asleep. The, the reality is, our flesh, our, our, our flesh does battle against the spirit. Our spirit is always willing. But our flesh is weak. And in Psalm 103, the Lord says, I made you, I know your frame, and you are but dust. So he has removed our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. What exactly do you expect from dust? When you get up in the morning, you expect a lot of things from dust? I wish the dust would get rid of the mics in my house right now. <laughs> but so far, my dust isn't doing anything. It just kind of sits there all the time. It doesn't really do much. What do you expect out of a dirt clod? Pick up a dirt clod and say, wow, this dirt clod can do so much for me. Nope. Unless you're throwing it at somebody. 
It's not going to do much for you. That's the way the Lord looks at us. We sometimes flip that around and we start thinking our dirt clod is better than somebody else's dirt clod. Well, I'm not not as bad a dirt clod as that fellow over there. (laughs) Folks, we're all dirt clods. We accomplish everything that we're able to do based on the power of the Holy Spirit working in our life. Everything we have from the faith for which that which we put in Christ to the power with which we walk in our life is all a gift from God. It's all from him. And recognizing that and seeing that helps keep us in a right place. Hey, the people had a great heart. We'll do it. But they never did. But guys, the very next thing Moses is going to do is sacrifice. He's going to bring out the blood. Why? Because this is what happens when we fail. The shedding of blood. Right now, right as the people are saying, we will do this. Look what it says. So Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain in 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men to the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Every covenant ever made throughout the scripture is made by the shedding of blood. Every covenant. Every promise. From the Adamic one at the Garden of Eden to the Abrahamic, here at the Mosaic, we'll see it again at the Davidic. As we go over and over again, these covenants are all going to be brought in with blood. Why? Because especially this one, the Mosaic covenant is a if you, then I. It's a conditional covenant. If you will obey, then I will always be with you and I'll bless you and all these positive things are going to take place. But knowing that there's going to be failure, the Lord has already provided that sacrifice, that blood to anoint that covenant. The new covenant, we see that that was brought in by blood, wasn't it? Jesus held up the cup and said what? This cup is a new covenant of my blood shed for you for the remission of sin. Jesus' blood ushered in the new covenant. And so here Moses is doing the same thing. He's going to put blood on the altar. But look at the other half. The other half of the blood he takes... And they took the book of the covenant in verse 7 and read it in the hearing of all the people. And they all said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. They sprinkled the blood on all the people. Folks, all throughout the Bible, the blood is a picture of the remission of sin. It's It's a picture of your heart is right, you want to do all these things, but you're going to fail. And when you do, there's a sacrificial system. Remember, we talked about how as we go through the Bible, the Lord lays out for us what we understand as progressive revelation. He's going to continue to build these patterns and pictures for us so that we recognize the ultimate Lamb of God promised in Genesis chapter 3. But it begins with this sacrificial system, working through the sacrifice, covering the people, sprinkling the blood ceremonially over the people, because you are now being covered by the blood that was shed. You are now being covered in this covenant. You are now being brought into this relationship with God. 
And so we will fail, but he will redeem. And Moses took that blood and he put it on the people. Now, Moses went up also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate, and they drank. Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Moses, Joshua, 70 elders, they go, they draw near the Lord, and we see the Old Testament equivalent of of Matthew 17, the transfiguration, when Jesus brought the, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, up to a hilltop, and there he was transfigured before them. They saw him there talking with Moshe, Moses, and Elijah. And remember, Peter said, we should build three tabernacles. And God had to tell Peter, be quiet. Listen to my son. Well, the equivalent of that we're experiencing right here. Moses sees the Lord. But, but this creates a problem for us, doesn't it? Because the Bible very clearly tells us no man can see God and live. No man can see him. So as we take a look at this, I, I want to kind of walk you through this concept, this transfiguration, who, what is going on? Who is Moses spending time with? What is he seeing? So we're going to take a little journey. If you would turn with me to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, the, the Lord lays out for us. All, the, all these things that we need to understand about his son. In John chapter 1, verse 14, he lays out for us. Um, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has exegesis him. Exegesis is what is used. All the instruments are falling over today. Exegesis is what is spoken of about rightly interpreting Scripture, taking Scripture apart, looking into it. Literally what's being said is Jesus has has taken apart who God is, what God is, what God's all about, and revealed him To us. No one has seen God at any time. When they see God, who are they seeing? Jesus. They're seeing Jesus. They're spending time with Him. Well, as you consider that concept, turn with me to Timothy chapter 6. In Timothy chapter 6, Timothy chapter 6, verses 13 through 16, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot or blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. 
Amen. Paul writing about the Father. Hey, he dwells in unapproachable light. Not only has no one seen him, no one can see him. So, folks, when we look at Scripture, when we interpret Scripture and we want to understand it, we need to realize we want to allow Scripture to tell us what it's talking about. The whole counsel of God's Word lays out for us. No one has seen the Father at any time. No one. Nor can anyone. But the one, his son, is whom reveals God to us. In the Bible tells us in the book of Colossians, in Christ dwells all the Godhead in bodily form. All of God is in Christ in bodily form, in visible form, so that it can be seen, so that God can be understood, so that in Christ the unknowable God is knowable. That's what the scriptures are are laying out for us. That's what they're beginning to describe for us. Well, maybe you're familiar with Isaiah chapter 6. If you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to see Isaiah have a a similar experience to what we're reading here about Moses and uh, and Aaron and uh, Nadab and Abihu. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, And he was high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one cried to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In verse 3, it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. If you look in your Bibles, that word Lord should be capital L-O-R-D. If it is capital L-O-R-D, as it should be, it is the Yahweh, the Y-H-V-H, the Tetragrammaton, the name of God. The exact name of God, the name for the Father. Yahweh, Jehovah some uh, translations will put it, but it's God's name. It's actual name of God. We don't know the vowels, only the continents. The consonants. Continents are, are big <laughs> things floating around in the water. That's not going to work. Consonants. Any, you know what I mean. The, the letters without vowels. So we, so we don't know how to, we really don't know how to say it. Nobody, everybody guesses. Uh, whether it's Yehovah, we know it's not Jehovah because there's no J in the Hebrew alphabet. It could be Yehovah, it could be Yahweh, but it's Y-H-V-H. Okay, that is the unquestionable very name of God. Well, while you're considering that, turn with me to John chapter 12. While we're considering what the, what the Lord has laid out for us there, in John chapter 12... Beginning in verse 38, Scripture says, So that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, verse 40, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. That section of Isaiah is taken from Isaiah chapter 6. 
See, Isaiah chapter 6 goes on and the Lord says, Who will we send to our people? Who will we send? And Isaiah lifts up his hand and says, Here I am, Lord, send me. And the Lord sends Isaiah and he said, I'm going to send you Isaiah and you're going to speak, but they're not going to hear. You're going to share, but they're not going to receive. But I'm going to go, we're going to give that word out. Hearing, they won't hear. Speaking, they won't perceive. And here we see that being applied to the Lord. But look at verse 41. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Quick lesson in the Greek. His glory and him emphatically in the Greek point to Jesus Christ. That Isaiah saw Jesus in Isaiah chapter 6. And that is given to us in the interpretation here in John chapter 12. Because the he, the him, and the his are pointing to Jesus Christ. Because John chapter 12 is clearly about him. And so in Isaiah 6, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, is him seeing Jesus Christ. The only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No man has seen God at any time. Jesus Christ reveals God to us. The unknowable God is known through Jesus Christ. Not he is like God. He is God. He is the Almighty. Well, every once in a while you'll run into folks that really don't agree with with what the scripture lays out for us but their argument is not with us their argument is what the bible says so as we continue this journey of understanding who they're standing before and who they're seeing there's two last scriptures i want us to look at isaiah 9 6 and isaiah 9 6 this is one that as we come especially as we come into the the Christmas season we should be familiar with. Isaiah 9, 6 says this. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. Who are we talking about? Jesus. Jesus. No question about it. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. What's the next one say? Everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. Yahweh. Jesus is God. He is God in visible form. He is the part of all that is God that we can know, that we can understand, that we can have revealed to us. And so when people see God in the scriptures, they're seeing Jesus Christ. The Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. And you shall call his name, what does scripture say? Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Jesus Christ, unquestioning. And one more scripture that we want to look at, that we want to consider as we're tying this all together, is John eight twenty four. In the gospel of John, especially in John chapter 8, the Lord is, is laying out for us uh, over and over again, John chapter 8, his deity. Ultimately, the, the Jewish Sanhedrin is going to want to stone him because he's making himself to be God. But folks, here's where the rubber meets the road in John 8, 24. Therefore, I say to you, you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. 
In your Bibles, it'll say, I am he. The he will be in italics. The italics means it's not there. It's given so that we understand what he's saying. What he's saying is he's declaring himself as the ego I me. The I am. Unless you believe I am eternal God, you'll die in your sins. Jesus is unquestionably deity. And way back in Exodus, where we find ourselves in 24, we see the 70 elders all gathered together having a, a, a feast with God, like a picture of heaven. It's, it's God. He's there before them. Jesus Christ laying this feast out for them as they sit down and they eat and they spend this time together. Just like we see in the transfiguration that Jesus did with the disciples. When we look at this, we can understand, we can begin to tie together, hey, there's not two different gods in the Old Testament and the New. God didn't get saved, and he was all mean and bitter in the Old Testament, and now he's all nice and good in the New. It's the same. The same Lord, same God. The Bible lays out for us, God says, I change not. I don't change my mind. I don't change these things. I am God. I change not. And so he's laying out for us this truth. Well, here, in verse 12, it says, back in Exodus 24, Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be here, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and the commandments which I have written that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up the mountain of God. So Moses climbs up Mount Sinai. They had this, this time with the Lord down there in the bottom. Remember, they were worshiping from afar. They drew nearer than the other people that were there. They had this neat time of worship. They see Almighty God. They spend time with Him. Then God says, okay, Moses, you come up. Now Moses brings with him Joshua. That's important. Moses in the Bible is the first picture of a, a pastor figure, a shepherd shepherding the people but the one who he raises up the one who god's going to choose to take the people after moses leaves is with moses right now he's learning from moses day in and day out how's he learning because he it's going to some special school no he's he's learning in the hebrew method follow me now what jesus said to his disciples come watch joshua's going to follow moses for for at minimum 40 more years after this as the children of Israel wander through the wilderness for 40 years before he leads the children of Israel into the promised land. But we see Moses training them up. God says, Moses, come on. Moses says, Joshua, let's go. Now Joshua is not going to be in the same place. He's not going to go as far up the mountain with Moses, but he's going to go up a long ways. He's going to see a lot of things nobody else is going to see. Because of this opportunity to train. So it says in verse 13, So Moses arose, assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Hey, wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. Aaron and Hur. Aaron and his wife. And I'm leaving here, Aaron and Hur. So if there's any issues, go to them. Well, apparently Aaron was not quite ready for this responsibility, was he? Because Moses is going to be on the mountain for 40 days. The children of Israel are going to say, Oh, we didn't know if you were ever coming down the mountain. So we wanted to do something. 
And, and Aaron's going to say, I just took their gold and put it in a fire and poof, a golden calf came out. And we all started dancing naked around the golden calf. It just sort of happened. But he lays out for him this, this concept in, in Aaron and her. And it's something that, that I'll always treasure the advice that somebody gave Kathy and I early on in ministry. In a, in a marriage relationship, God has given you a unique gift. He is giving you two people that both hear from the Holy Spirit. And there's, you know, often been some, some things floating through the church that talk about, and, and, and in, in essence, part of it I agree with, you know, that men need to rise up and men need to take their, the, the authority that God's given them and, and guide and, and lead their family, but that's not a totalitarian guiding. God told Abraham to listen to his wife. Abraham listened to his wife one time, and, and he had Ishmael. <laughs> then, later on, his wife's saying something to him, and he's like, oh, I'm, last time I listened to you, I got in trouble. And God said, Abraham, listen to your wife. Kathy and I have made an agreement, and it goes across the board in our marriage relationship, from finances to where we're going to live, if, you know, where we're going to move, where the kids go to school, and that is, we will both agree. And if we don't both agree, how do I know that that's not the Holy Spirit trying to put a check on me trying to do something that I ought not, or her, that she ought not? So when we don't agree, we pray. The amazing thing about God is He is able to change one of our minds. And if it takes, however long it takes, that's how long it takes. There's no such thing as an emergency with the Lord. There's not like, you have to agree with me or, or the, the price of that house is going to go up and we won't be able to get it. Well, good, then don't get it. Better not to get it than to get it, go in it forcing your spouse, dragging your spouse along with you, and then all of a sudden, when hard times come and you're hungry, whose fault is it? Yours. Why? Because you didn't go into it in agreement. Within the government of the church, the the ruling body of the church are the elders. The elders never, we will never do anything on a three to four vote. We won't do it. Because we're not, how do I know that's not the Spirit of God checking us and four of us are wrong? God, is God able to speak by His Spirit and to make all decisions unanimous? Sure He is. Sure He is. That's why the, the government within the church where the where churches are congregationally run you don't see moses casting a vote with all the children of israel how would he ever get to do anything it would be you know one million four hundred ninety five thousand to you know eight hundred and sixty five thousand against and three hundred thousand abstain we can't do nothing that way but the lord laid out hey pick men for the holy spirit seek me and allow the Spirit to guide and lead and direct. And so that's what we want. Well, here, if only Aaron and her, we're going to hear how Aaron messed up, but the Bible doesn't say her did. Just, just Aaron. Fellas, sometimes we just go running off thinking we got all the answers, and we don't consider that woman that God has given us and the wisdom through which the Holy Spirit can speak through her. If we will learn the lesson that Abraham learned, hey, 
Abraham, listen to your wife. Know when to listen to your wife. Know how to agree. Know how to let the Holy Spirit guide and lead. Then they're going to make better decisions. So, unfortunately, you and I know Aaron's going to mess up before we get back to him. But at least right now, he's been the one left in control uh, under the 70. Or uh, before the 70. If any man has difficulty, let him go to them. Verse 15, Then Moses went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And it wasn't until the seventh day that God spoke to him. Now I wonder what that was like. It kind of reminds me of Noah going on the ark. You remember when Noah went on the ark? God says to Noah, Noah, go on the ark. So Noah gets on the ark, but it didn't start raining that day. Or the next day, or the next day, or the next day. How many days Moses sit up there on that mountain in the glory of the Lord is all around, the Shekinah glory of God. God's presence is there, but God's not speaking. God's not telling me anything yet. You ever felt like that? Lord, you're not talking to me. Hey, I got a timetable. You know, I got places to go and things to do. That's why the Bible says those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings of eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not faint. Because everything we're able to do, everything we're able to accomplish, everywhere we're able to move forward with the Lord is all going to be occurring in our life by His power, by His strength, through, through His Holy Spirit working in us. And so... If God has us sit for six days, sit for six days. He's going to speak. But he don't run in our, in our time frame. I know for Kathy and I, folks, there was a time, Kathy and I very clearly felt God's direction calling me into ministry. The opportunity to go to school was there. I had another job, but I was making a lot less money. And I remember thinking that I had it all figured out how God was going to make it happen. So I had the plan all laid out. We cashed out our retirement. We, we, that retirement was going to get us all evened up for, for what would lack between the two jobs so that until I could finish school and we'd be able to move forward. And everything was all looking like it was going to fit just perfect, except for the part where the owner of the company I worked for spent all that retirement and it wasn't there. But the good news is, they didn't tell us. See, they said, well, it'll take three months for you to get your your check. Oh, okay. So for three months, we kind of float things. And then at three months, I call. And they say, oh, another month. But finally, at six months, the word came down that none of the money was there. The owner of the company declared bankruptcy, closed the doors of his business on Friday on Monday, he opened the doors of his business under a new name and walked away scot-free. And so I was kind of back up against the wall. Hey, Lord, uh, hey, if you're going to do something here, it needs to be pretty quick. And we waited. And we waited. And God spoke here and there and did this and that, but it didn't all go away in one night. Didn't all go away in a month. We, we walked through, ultimately we ended up walking through that storm for oh, pretty close to the next eight or nine years. 
and dealing with repercussions from it all. But God carried us through every single step of the way. And he waited way beyond the point of no return. And then he would speak or move or guide or direct or open the doors. And we would see his presence, feel him guiding and leading us all the way through. Hey, that's how we want to go through life. That's what we want to do. If the Lord has us wait, wait. If the Lord has placed you in a, in a marriage relationship, use that gift of the Holy Spirit in your spouse to help guide you so you know that you know, hey, this is where I'm supposed to be going. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And if God doesn't speak on day one, wait till day two, three, four, five, six. Finally, the scripture says it was on day seven. On the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So they're looking up at the top of the mountain, 7,000 feet away, way up there. And it's just bright, this incredible bright light. And Moses is in the middle of that. Well, we know what happens when he comes down the hill, right? The reflection of that light still going to be bore upon him in his face. People won't even be able to look at him. Because he'd been in the presence of God, not seeing him face to face, but in the presence of God, just with God's glory around him. And it makes him shine, makes his face shine. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly, willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold and silver and bronze, blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins, dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. In chapter 25, he begins to tell them about what he wants to do. Hey, there's going to be a dwelling place, a place so that I will dwell with you. I'm going to be with you. You're going to build the sanctuary, and that's where I'm going to live. The great news for you and I, that sanctuary is you and I. For now, our bodies are the temple of God. God dwells in us. For them... Prior to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he's going to dwell at the mercy seat in the, in the tabernacle between the cherubim. Interesting because even as he talks about this, I'm going to dwell with you. I'll dwell between the cherubim. He's, he, it was between the cherubim at the Garden of Eden. That's where they would meet God. There are many commentators who, who suppose that when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, you remember the cherubim were set at the, at the entrance. I don't imagine Adam and Eve went trucking too far away. I imagine they stayed pretty close. And maybe it was that they would come between the cherubim to meet with the Lord. Between those two cherubim that blocked the way into the, the Garden of Eden, maybe that's where they would offer their sacrifice. We know they offered sacrifice, right? Cain and Abel offered sacrifice. Who taught them to offer sacrifice? Well, you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where did Adam and Eve get their clothes? 
They made for themselves fig leaves, but that didn't work, right? So what did God do? He gave them animal skins. Where did that skin come from? First sacrifice? Was it God that taught them the first sacrifice? Was that first animal a lamb? Sure would fit with the the patterns of Scripture, wouldn't it? As he provided them a covering. And from generation to generation to generation, that same thing was passed on, passed down. God stayed between the cherubim. On the Ark of the Covenant, we're going to see two cherubim. Where did the Lord dwell? Between the two cherubim. Where was the two cherubim placed? On what is known as the mercy seat. On that mercy seat, that's where God would meet his people, on the mercy seat. On the mercy seat because his people need mercy. So as we take a look at this, we're going to see God's desire. Folks, God's desire is to dwell with his people. That's his desire. I want to be with you. I want to know you. I want to live among you. I want to be in that place. But prior to doing it, he's going to call his people to give. This is going to be the only time in the history of the world that God's people gave so much, God had to tell them to stop. He does. In Exodus chapter 35, we're going to see Moses go to the people and tell them, hey, God's calling us to give. We're going to build this tabernacle. So we want you to give. And so the people would give. But only those who gave willingly. You understand? That's what God said. If you don't want to give, forget it. I don't need your money. I need you to have a a right relationship with your money. I need you to have a right relationship with me. I need to, to be in the right place in your life. So in chapter 35 of Exodus, he calls them to give. In chapter 36 of Exodus, in verse 5, it says, And the people spoke to Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave a commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man or woman nor any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from giving. Stop. Too much. Only time in history that I'm aware of, that at least in the scripture, that that ever took place. Where God called for them to give and they gave so much that there was an abundance in the house. And they had more than they needed to, to make the tabernacle. In the tabernacle, they're going to use 2,500 pounds of gold, 9,600 pounds of silver, 6,700 pounds of bronze. People are all going to give it in the trinkets and the things that they have. Not, not including all the skins, all the dyes, all the blue and purple and scarlet thread. All of those things. All going to come from the people. And when we consider that attitude that the people had, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the Lord lays out for, for us this attitude, this attitude of gratitude that He calls for us to have. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, he says, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves those who 
who give. And that's the first thing he told the children of Israel when they were gathering together their offering. Where did they get that offering? When they left Exodus, when they left Egypt, you remember? All the neighbors came to him and they said, ask whatever silver and gold you want and they'll give it to you. And so they were given that silver and gold, whatever battles took place as they fought with the, the Amorites, we read it, and Rephidim. As they went through whatever they gathered, whatever they had, when they were called to give, they gave. And God was able to, to accomplish above and beyond what they could imagine even possible. But the Lord says, hey, when you have that heart, when you have that attitude, it all comes through as such a blessing. Well, there's a lot of people that, that perhaps even here at the as the Lord was making this call, who felt like, well, you know, I don't really have the ability to give. I can't, I can't make it, I can't make it happen. We don't really have it. Ends don't meet. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, the Lord says, Will a man rob God? You have robbed me. You say, how? What way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me even this whole nation. So the children of Israel didn't stay with that same attitude, right? The attitude they had in Exodus by Malachi was gone. Now it was about what's mine is mine. But folks, this is the only place in all the Bible where God says, test me. In Malachi 3.10, he says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing, there will not be room enough to receive it. But look what he says in the next verse. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sake, that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground or the vine will fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts, and all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Well, as the Lord's laying out this concept for his people, he's telling them, hey, I'll rebuke the devourer. If we don't have a right relationship in terms of giving with the Lord, then there's never enough. I don't know how it works. I just know it does. And I write a tithe check just like everybody else. And I'll, I'll always do that. The Lord taught me way back when. And I won't do it begrudging or because I have to. I'll do it because I know that it makes my heart right with God. For where my treasure is, that's where my heart is going to be. And my treasure in my checkbook, the devourer comes and eats it all. Money talks, don't it? It says buy. <laughs> it's just going away. That's what it does. We want to have that, that right relationship. When Kathy and I were going through all those heartaches, all that trouble, we didn't have no money, and we went back to that concept of, of doing a free will tithe. Not mandatory, nobody checking on it, just between me and the Lord. Hey, God, this is what I believe you're calling me to. It's something that I could do and be happy to do. And, and we've done it ever since. And it doesn't make sense, and I don't know how it works, but it works. The devourer is gone. I may not have thousands of dollars left at the end of the month, but I got enough. It always has been enough. And if there was something lacking, the Lord provided. He, he is faithful to the promises that he, that he lays out for us. And we see that occurring in such an incredible way 
in Exodus chapter 25. As they begin to give, as they begin to open up, as the Lord lays it out, keep in mind, you shall take an offering from everyone who gives it willingly. How? With his heart. You remember when Jesus was watching? He was in the temple watching. What was he watching? What they gave? He's watching how they gave. That's what the scripture says. He was watching how they gave. And you remember the woman that he, he builds up wasn't because she had the biggest sack of money, right? The widow who gave the widow's might. And the Lord said, truly, she's given more than all of these. But it wasn't how, how much she gave. It was how she gave. The attitude of her heart. Out of her need. Out of her necessity. And God meets her needs. Now, as we take a look, we're going to see the tabernacle beginning to be built. You look over that list of items. Every one of those items points to Christ. Every one. Every piece. Gold will speak of deity. Silver will speak of redemption. Bronze will speak of judgment. Blue will speak of the heavenly. Scarlet of his humanity. We're going to go over and over through all these pieces, all the parts of the tabernacle, but you're going to see that that tabernacle points to Jesus Christ. That it is Jesus Christ. That it is a picture of where the sacrifice is made, how the implements are all brought together, how they're all used. Everything is going to point to him. So as we begin taking a look at these different things, I want to, I want to show you a couple of slides that uh, was able to put together when we went to Israel the last time that I went to Israel, I had an opportunity to go visit the tabernacle. Now, this gives us an idea when we talk about the tabernacle, what we're talking about. The fence around the tabernacle would have been 75 feet wide, 150 feet long. We'll see that in the measurements. Made out of a linen fence. A linen fence. Speaking of purity, of righteousness. And that linen fence held, holds everyone out. There is only one door into the tabernacle. Only one. Not multiple openings. Just one. One door. What did Jesus say? I am the door. Anyone else who comes by any other way is a thief or a robber. But I am the door. You'll notice in, in future slides that I show you, I'm taking this picture from the door. Everywhere else is linen fence. But the door is made out of the same material that the veil was made out of, made out of the same material that that front door on the front of the tabernacle was made out of. All of those materials we'll see as we continue to study through are all going to point to Christ. Christ is the door. He's the door into the tabernacle. He's the veil to the Holy of Holies. His body was broken. Therefore, the veil was torn and the way was made by his sacrifice for us to enter into the presence of God. In front of the tabernacle, you see the bronze altar. That's where the sacrifice will be made. The bronze altar is a big square barbecue. That's what it is. There's a grate inside it. The meat of the sacrifice will be put on there. Some of the sacrifice, depending on what type of sacrifice, would just burn there on the altar. The smoke rising up to the heavens as though God was partaking with you. A portion of the sacrifice would be for you. When it was cooked, you would take that part of your sacrifice and you and your family would eat of it and a part of the sacrifice would go to the priest who was doing the sacrifice. Behind that 
we have what's known as the bronze laver. The bronze laver is the area where the priest would wash himself. He had to have all the blood washed off of himself in order to enter into the holy place. He had to wash. So the bronze laver is where he would wash his hands and feet. As we look at this, we're going to see that that bronze altar speaks of the cross, where the sacrifice is made, where the atonement for sin is given, the cross of Jesus Christ. It points to the cross. Behind that, the washing of the water of the Word that makes us or sanctifies us, gives us that right relationship with God so that we can enter into service. As we look at the tabernacle, the tabernacle is broken to three parts. The outer court is where we're standing now. Then we will go into the holy place. In the holy place, there are three pieces of furniture. There is the table of showbread, the golden altar, and the golden lampstand. Those are the three pieces of furniture that we'll see in the holy place. The holy place is where every priest went every day to do their service. Anyone could go in there. It was the holy of holies, that next section, the third section, that was where high priest only went once a year on on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. He would go in there one time to seek that covering, that blessing of God, the sins of the nation being forgiven for another year until it came around again. In that area, the Holy of Holies, there were two items. We often see them as one. The two items that we'll see in the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. The Ark of the Covenant is the box, roughly four foot by two foot by two foot, into which is placed the Ten Commandments, the, the golden censer of, uh, of manna, and Aaron's rod that buds. In various times in their history, different things were put in, different things were taken out. But basically, the law, the Ten Commandments, were always apart. In the Ark, therefore, is placed all the failures of the children of Israel. What covers all the failures of the children of Israel? Mercy seat. The mercy seat would be placed on top, The blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat. So when God looked down from heaven upon his people, their failures were covered by mercy and the blood of the sacrifice. All the the different parts of the tabernacle are going to point to characteristics of Christ and our relationship with him. So the holy place speaks of service, the holy of holies, of worship. And we... Enter into our relationship with Jesus the same way. First, we come to the bronze altar, the sacrifice. We receive the forgiveness of our sins by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Then we experience the sanctification, the washing of the word. It makes us clean so that we can enter into service, where we enter into the the place of his presence. The bread, the table of showbread, literally means the table of the bread of his presence. The bread of his presence. Didn't Jesus say, I am the bread of life? And there the table of showbread was a picture of that. The bread, 12 loaves, would always be on that table. Speaking of the bread, God's ability to sustain his people with everything that they needed. Behind that, the only thing that shone light in the holy place was the golden lampstand. Didn't Jesus say, I am the light of the world. And so he also said, 
I am the vine and you are the branches. Unless you abide in the vine, you'll not bear fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. On the menorah, there's one vine, six branches. Six is the number of man. Six branches symbolize man. The vine down the middle, man's relationship with God. We are all on the same level, but there are different ones who are closer to the vine. We all have that choice. How close to the vine do we want to be in that example? So all the way through, we're going to see those things. Let's take a look at the next slide just to try to give you an idea. The entire camp of Israel would encamp around the tabernacle. The tabernacle was in the middle. You remember Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, there I am in your midst. In the middle of the camps, they would camp around them. The tabernacle always faced to the east. Each standard, north, south, east, and west, would be built around one of the tribes in that area. The tribe of influence in the east was the tribe of Judah. So the entire encampment in the east would encamp under the ensign of the tribe of Judah, which was a lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah So in order to enter through the door of the tabernacle, you had to come through the tribe of Judah. Where did the Messiah come from? The tribe of Judah, the line of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ being the door, always faced towards Judah and them in their midst. So in the next slide, we can get an idea for uh, how everything laid out. You get an artist's conception of the door. You see how the door is in a different color as we go through the study? We'll see that that color symbolizes deity in Christ. It's all uh, um, part of the tapestry with the cherubim, angels all over it. And then we go to the altar, then the laver, then into the, the tabernacle itself, and ultimately into the Holy of Holies, where the pillar of fire would reside in the midst of the cherubim. And when the tabernacle is built, the children of Israel could always see if God was with them. All they had to do was look over at the tabernacle. The next picture, it lays out for us where the implements were. They were always set just like this. First, you come to the bronze altar, then the laver, the table of showbread on the right, the altar of incense or the place where prayers were offered. And then the menorah, the golden lampstand. Then straight behind that veil would be where the Ark of the Covenant was. That would only be entered into once a year on the the Day of Atonement. On the next slide. uh, Yeah, keep going. Did you go backwards? Okay. This is an artist's replica of the Ark of the Covenant. Let me... Go through this next section in, in chapter 25. We'll just leave that picture up there. The next section of 25 is dealing with that. Listen. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length. A cubit and a half its width. A cubit and a half its depth. Roughly four by two by two. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it. And shall make on it a molding of gold all around a golden crown so when we look at the the materials that made up the ark of the covenant it speaks of both humanity and deity the wood covered with gold wood always speaks 
of humanity. Gold always speaks of deity. So we see here this example, this ark, carrying around the failures of the people, points to Jesus in his humanity and his divinity. The the God-man, the perfect sacrifice that's going to come, made of gold and wood, humanity and divinity. And you will cast four rings of gold for it and put them on the four corners. Two rings shall be in one side, two rings on the other side. You will make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Again, humanity and divinity. Over and over, we're going to see that. Humanity and divinity pointing to the fact that God would become a man in the symbolism within the tabernacle. But there's one more thing that you want to understand. It's made of acacia wood. Acacia wood is now protected wood in Jerusalem, so they don't make much out of it. But back in the time of Christ, they used to make use acacia wood for something rather specific. It was a cross. Acacia wood is the wood with which they would make the cross. The cross, where Christ would go, becomes part of the material symbolizing his body and the work ultimately that he's going to do. The poles will be in the rings of the ark, and they, not shall, they shall not be taken out of it. Then you shall put into the ark the testimony that I give you, the law, the law that's going to be broken every single day. Where are all the commandments of God? In the ark. In the ark, in that place, in the ark of the covenant, in this box. Now you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. The lid was made of pure gold, the mercy seat. Ultimately, the throne of God is this mercy seat, this concept. And as we look at this, as we see the the symbolism and stuff on it, while while you're considering all those things, let me just read from you from the New Testament, uh, from the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 9. Let me share with you what the writer of Hebrews would lay out for us about this very same tabernacle. He says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was a lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, Behind the second veil, in the holiest of alls, uh, was placed the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid on all sides with gold, in which was a golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way to the holiest of alls was not yet made open while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed them perfect in regard to conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks and washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, 
Not with the blood of goats and of calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, how much more shall he cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant that was that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal, internal, eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must be the death of the testator. Therefore it was necessary that the copy of the things in the heavens would be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. For Christ did not enter the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Hebrews 9 lays out for us that the tabernacle is a copy of the throne room in heaven. It is a picture of the throne room in heaven. And the mercy seat, we'll see as we continue to study, is the throne of God. The place where God sets. That word, mercy seat, is translated in the New Testament to the word propitiation. You heard of that before? Jesus Christ has become our propitiation. He is the mercy seat. Did you see how the mercy seat was made? Pure gold. Speaking of the deity of Christ, pure gold. But what kind of work was it? Was it a molded work? Uh Uh-uh. Hammered. It was hammered because Christ would be hammered and beaten. And that would become a symbol of the mercy of God. We're going to see everything made of gold within the tabernacle will be of beaten work. Gold hammered into shape. So that it would take the shape that those who who were designing it desired it to be. So this, this mercy seat, the propitiation... The exactly what Jesus Christ is called. He has become our mercy seat, the one upon whom the blood is sprinkled, covering the failures of all the people, so that when God looks down, he sees the blood of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was crucified, he didn't enter into the tabernacle. He didn't go to the temple. Where did he go? He went to the, to the holiest place in heaven. He sprinkled his blood there on the mercy seat, the throne of God. Purchasing for you and I eternal redemption. You see, God is painting that picture all the way back in Exodus of those things which were to take place. Scripture goes on to say now, this mercy seat, you will take two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it in one of one piece with the mercy seat. One giant chunk of gold hammered into shape. And the cherubim will stretch out their wings covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they will face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark 
you will put the testimony that I give you in verse 22, and that's where I will meet you. That's where our relationship with God is found, in Christ. He pictured in the tabernacle. Christ would meet them in this place. Where were the angels looking? At the failures of the men. At the failures of the testimony, the broken Ten Commandments. The failure of the people's willingness to trust in the provision of God and their complaints over the manna. The failure of the people to believe that God would guide them and lead them in the leadership that he had provided. So Aaron's rod spoke of their rebellion. All of these things the angels would look down on. And then the blood would be sprinkled over to cover. And God said, that's the place of meeting. That's where I will be. That's where everyone will come to see me. It's the same way still today. How do we have a relationship with God? It's through Jesus Christ. First we come by the altar, then the bronze laver. We enter into a place of service, and ultimately it's in worship that we meet God, that we see, that we experience all that he has. Why? Because of the sacrifice he made for us, because he was hammered, because he was beaten, because his blood paid the price for you and I. God paints that picture here in this place. He says, and I will speak to you from above the mercy seat and from between the two cherubim which were on the ark about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. As far as we'll go tonight as we take a look at the beginning of the things. As we look at the making of the tabernacle, do you see where God started? You notice when I did the little review of the tabernacle, we started on the outside. Because we're usually on the outside first. Where did God start? In the Holy of Holies? In the midst? In the, in the middle of it all? He's going to lay out all these things to Moses. And Moses is going to take them to the people. Do the same thing. We're going to start on the outside. But God, the first thing he gives the plans for, here's the Ark of the Covenant. Here's the real deal. This is where I'm going to meet you. This is where I'm going to be. You tell people, that's where we're going to start. This is what we want to start with, a place where God can meet with us. That's what God's heart is for you and for me and for everyone. I want to meet you, but I can only meet you at the mercy seat. I can only meet you at the place where the blood is applied. Still the same today. But now that veil has been torn and someone else doesn't have to go there for us. You and I, we can enter into the presence of God with boldness, right? Because... We're covered with the blood of his son. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for this time that we could come before you. We thank you for the opportunity, Lord Jesus, to just seek your blessing and your touch. Father, we ask, God, as we just pour ourselves through your word, God, we would realize every word, every letter speaks of you, that you're in every story, that you're a part of all these things that each implement used is going to speak to you. Father, give us eyes to see and a heart willing to to receive and understand. Make us not like the children of Israel who you spoke, you speaking to Isaiah said, they're not going to hear no matter what you say. We don't want to be like that, Lord. 
Make us hungry to know your word, hungry to understand how to apply it, hungry to see you on each and every page. Father, may you grow within us that hunger and thirst for righteousness, and may we be filled as we devour your word, as we meet you at the table of your presence, the word of God. Father, we ask that you would just bless each and every one. Father, we pray for Saturday as we outreach to our community, as we reach out to them and and just desire to be able to show them, Father, the the truth that Christ is in and of everything. They can celebrate whatever they want, but they need to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Father, we want to take an opportunity to, to reach out and to touch them, so we pray that you would send workers to the field for the harvest field is white and ready. Lord God, we ask that you would give us a blessing on Saturday, Father. Lord, that you would go before us, that you would watch over and keep all things safe, but Father, that you would be glorified in and through it all. We lay these things before you as we seek your blessing in it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.